Uh, welcome back to Driving Theology. This is uh, Mike. Um, this is going to be some uh, ramblings on on uh, vaguely theo- theological uh, topics in layman's terms, uh, and uh, whatever else comes to my mind. I do this while I'm driving. No notes. Uh, no planning, really. And just pray that uh, the Lord give me something to say that uh, people who might be listening, uh, both of you, <laughs> uh, you know, might uh, find something interesting. Uh, this is uh, somewhere around my 31st podcast. Uh, started back in uh, toward the end of 2015. This is around June 2016. So. Yeah, started listening to a new podcast, which is uh, really great. Um, now I have to remember what it's called, so hopefully I can go to it real quick. Sorry for the tapping on the phone. Uh, called the God Journey. Uh, the God Journey. Uh, I just got on that. Uh, my friend Patrick has been trying to get me. Uh, to uh, listen to that for some time. Um, yeah, I finally got into it and glad I did. It's uh, a podcast by uh, Wayne Jacobson, uh, who has who is a writer uh, and uh, just an all-around good guy. He's a he's a former pastor, uh, church planter, I believe, former pastor, and he's stepped away the last twenty or so years. He and his wife from full-time. Ministry, uh, in able to, uh, in order to pursue the Lord in different ways, uh, which kind of, in a sense, echoes my own journey. Even though I've never held uh, an official, uh, an official uh, title or uh, received any salary from a church, I, I was very involved in our local church, which is a very small congregation here in Japan. Uh, for almost 20 years, uh, and I did, I was a, pretty much the full-time worship leader, I was the full-time worship leader, uh, and preached as well, was on leadership committees, uh, and was involved in the planning of all the stuff that went on, uh, and uh, yeah, we've stepped away from that now the last two years, and we are also pursuing the Lord in different ways. Uh, so I highly recommend that podcast called The God Journey by Wayne Jacobson. And he has uh, frequent guests on there. Another podcast I've been listening to lately uh, is the Phil Vischer podcast with Sky Jatani. Another great podcast. Uh, so a lot of the stuff I talk about uh, have sometimes been suggested by them. And I just try to... Uh, regurgitate them in a way that's uniquely mine, hopefully. Um, Trying to think of some of the things they were talking about, uh, which was interesting, and I want to kind of go on the same subject, but maybe apply it to my life in the form of a testimony today and just see see how that sits with you. Uh, the first Wayne Jacobson podcast I listened to, which I think is the first one that you can actually get. It seems like there were possibly hundreds before that, but uh, I'm not sure if they deleted all the podcasts or what, but it 
seems like they're not all up anymore. So if you want to listen to them, I suggest you start soon, uh, or they may start disappearing one by one. Uh, anyway, he talked about the need to excel or the need to be uh, significant uh, within uh, the Christian life and how many of us are either pushed by outside forces or push ourselves to be the best and the biggest and the fastest and the greatest and, and uh, this need to be first in something uh, is a desire that many people have uh, and some people more than others obviously those of us who have a very competitive nature uh, hate losing enjoy winning uh, and probably give it a little bit of control in our lives when one or the other happens. Um, but this need to be significant uh, is one that in the church is particularly dangerous because it, it ushers into our life a works-based theology that if we are not doing significant things for the Lord, He is not, or at least less happy with us, that we should be doing significant things. And this is something I hadn't really thought about. I mean, I, I have to admit that I, I found myself praying that God use us in significant ways in his kingdom, for his kingdom to his glory. I've said that, and I, now that I've listened to uh, the God Journey podcast, I, you know, I realize that there may be some me in that, the, the, the desire to be important uh, or instrumental uh, in, in the kingdom. Uh, and so, yeah, I would just uh, ask you to search your heart and think about that. What, what about you is there that says, Jesus wants me to do significant things, to be all that I can be, to be the best of the best, or, or to be the best that I can be for his kingdom? And if you think that, is there a hint of, and if I don't do that, he's not happy with me, or I'm not living up to my potential. Now on the outside, it, you know, it doesn't seem so bad. It really doesn't seem that, um, it really doesn't seem that harmful to have these thoughts. And I will say that I think these are natural thoughts. I think that, that humans naturally think this way, and I think this comes from uh, older times when, you know, in order to be, a, to bring home food, you, you had to push yourself to be faster or smarter, uh, or just better to be a hunter or a soldier, you know, to protect the people you love or, or whatever, so there was a desire to, to really hone our abilities, uh, there may have been a survival issue there. Um, but what, how that tends to play out in our walk with the Lord is 
if we're not significant in the kingdom, our value is not as great in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, and yeah, that, that's a very dangerous thing because what that says is that my value to the Lord is based on what I do or how well I do something. And this is, of course, this becomes a works-based soteriology, basically, or works-based theology, where you think that your salvation is based on how well you perform uh, perceived tasks uh, for the kingdom of God. You know, Paul talks about that and I wish I knew the scripture better. It's one that I really am going to have to look up. In fact, I can't tell you where it is. But, but the idea that Jesus wills and works through us, that it's not I, this is what Paul says, not I, but Christ living in me. You know, it's not I, but Christ does it in me. So that the actor one taking the action is not us, but Jesus, but he is doing it through us. He's using our body to act innocent through us. And that is a perfect situation. That, If we can get to that point where Jesus is given control of our body, that our bodies become subject to the will of Jesus, then that is that is an optimum position to be in. Um, so if anything, if anything, we need to do less in order to let Jesus do more. Now I can hear you thinking, and of course I hear me thinking it too, otherwise I wouldn't know that you were thinking it. That sounds lazy. That sounds like laziness. But, I think you need to search, uh, search yourself, uh, and see what that would mean to you. Uh, now you may have to safeguard yourself against laziness. I don't know. That's something that, that certainly I would have to do. Um, I think, I think you could get lazy, and I think you could isolate yourself. And I think isolation is where we miss the boat. You know, if we say, oh, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, that, that seems like a good idea, but I don't want to do anything unless Jesus does it through me. And so you lock yourself in your room or in your house or out in the country or, or on the top of a mountain or in some monastery. You lock yourself away and isolate yourself from people so that only Jesus can be the actor, the one that takes action through you. I'm not saying that there is no benefit to monasteries, but I, I think isolation takes away the possibility that, that Jesus can act through you because where he would be acting through you is specifically to people who need you. To the homeless, to the sick, to the outcast, uh, to the ostracized, uh, to the foreigner, to the refugee, uh, 
victim of violence, uh, to the victim of abuse of all kinds. If you're not around those people, how can Jesus work through you for them? And so I would suggest we, we take care not to isolate ourselves, right? Take, take care not to isolate ourselves, but to freely mingle with people and allow the Spirit to move us and to work through us. Um, now, I'm, hopefully I'm preaching to the choir. But I want to tell you something that I found here in Japan that makes makes this difficult. Uh, the Japanese are a very self-sufficient people, and their culture, uh, since hundreds of years ago, they pretty much hide their weaknesses. They don't. They don't allow you to know about family finances. They don't allow you to know about debts they have or uh, bills that are, that may be late. They don't talk about so much uh, their illnesses. They may tell you how they're feeling that day. Something very, very light that's not really a, uh, a big problem. But they generally don't don't talk about their illnesses. In fact. It's not uncommon for a neighbor to die of cancer who has been battling cancer for months and nobody in the neighborhood knew it. Uh, that's Japan. I don't know if it comes from the Bushido, the, the samurai culture, uh, because if you, you know, in that culture, if, if a warrior were to uh, make his weaknesses known to his opponent, he would, you know, that would be a disadvantage. He would, his opponent would take advantage of that. Uh, and so in this culture in Japan, people don't, don't flaunt their weaknesses or their needs. And they certainly don't beg. Uh, and so finding people in need is really, really tough. Now when a disaster happens, as, as happened on uh, March 11th, 2011, yeah, things get a lot simpler then, right? Uh, we know who needs help, uh, and the, the need is so dire and so immediate that they receive it. Uh, but that's been five years past, and these days it's very difficult to find. Now, we, we responded to that, to that need, and we helped people in, in whatever way we could. We've helped people in Joso. Uh, as much as we could, but uh, it's really, really difficult to find people that really need help. Uh, and the only way to find people that need help is to go deep with them relationally, to become uh, very close to people. Uh, and in doing that, you you tend to uh, find at least hints to needs that they have. Uh, and generally, the kind of needs we, we meet here are emotional needs. You know, things to pray about. A lot of it's fear. 
Uh, Japanese people do have a lot of fear. They fear about their future, the future of their country, the future of their family, the future of their children, of course, uh, the future of their job, whether they'll have a national pension once they retire, and all these kinds of things. Um, there is that. Uh, a lot of fear. There is fear of shame from failure of, of different kinds. Um, but none of this you would be able to find out unless, unless you were willing to put in a lot of time to get to know somebody. It's that kind of a place here. And that coupled along with the affluence of, of this country one of the richer countries in the world, I would say, certainly per capita, with a large middle class, a small number of rich, and a very small number of poor. But here again, even if you're poor, it's hard to find them. It's hard to find who's poor. Uh, we live in a city of upwards of 100,000 people. I want to say it's closer to 140,000. And I know of one homeless person, one. And trying to find him is tough. In fact, we haven't seen him in a year. When we do see him, we try to help him in any way we can. But there, there's, he's just, he's just impossible to track. You know, he's very difficult to find. Um, so yeah. Um, so back, back to significant, back to the idea of, I'm not even sure how I got off on that tangent. <laughs> uh, now how this is personal to me is that I, I grew up not being significant in school. In fact, I would say academically, I was completely insignificant all the way in, all the way through high school. Even in college, with a few exceptions, I was quite insignificant as far as academia went. And there's some classes I liked and there's some subjects that I could excel in, but I wasn't a terribly disciplined person. Uh, now what I did love is sports and I, I really tried my best to become a high school athlete. I went out for for uh, four different sport, sports, four different times. I went out for cross country and then track and tennis. And none of those lasted more than, I'd say a month to six weeks. Tennis may have lasted longer, but tennis was kind of a joke. It really wasn't difficult uh, at all. I'm not sure why I eventually quit tennis. I probably shouldn't have. Um, but, uh, yeah, cross country was really, really challenging. That was my freshman year in high school. And my freshman year in high school, I did horrible, horrib horribly, I did horribly uh, in my classes. Um, and the, the, team that I went out for, the cross-country team, 
took state that year, and I want to say eight years after that. It was a it, it was an incredible program, great coach and a great team, and the city I lived in was even higher than Denver, and so there was not a lot of air up there, and running cross country, running you know three, four, five, six miles uh, at over a mile high in the desert uh, was really tough for a kid who had just moved from the Midwest from sea level, basically. Um, so, failed at that, gave that a month, uh, dropped out. In that spring, I went out for track, same deal, great runners in that program. I really couldn't compete, and the air, oh my goodness, the air. Uh, so, yeah, that was a failure, that was my freshman year, I failed academically, I failed, uh, I failed in a lot of ways my freshman year, it was a pretty miserable year. Uh, my sophomore year, my parents, because I had such a hard time my freshman year, my parents put me into a Christian school. And at the Christian school, they, it was basically a glorified homeschool. Uh, and so they used homeschool materials where you could work at your own pace. And each student basically had workbooks to go through. And after you finished one, you went on to the other. And you just tried to finish a certain number within a certain time. Uh, and I did great at that. I was always a good reader. Uh, and so when I... Uh, yeah, I just put my mind to it. I think I got straight A's, which is the first and only time I've ever gotten straight A's. And that was at uh, a private Christian school. Which, uh, yeah, really kind of helped me get my my feet on the ground in a lot of ways. Uh, I took some leadership roles in the school. I think I was class president. Um, again, it was a tiny school, so I don't want to make anything of it than it wasn't. But being a Christian school, it also gave me uh, kind of the, the ability to kind of be a leader in my youth group at church. So I went to the same school that I went to church, so I was a, I was a leader there. I did some song leading. I started finding music during this time. Now, I had always loved singing and come from a singing family. Um, not professionally, but, but good singers. Um, and so... I found music, and so when I went back to, after a semester at the Christian school, we decided, uh, because of, uh, let's just say, relationship problems with a girl, uh, <laughs> I went back to the public school, but I kind of had my feet under me now and had some confidence, uh, and went back to the public school, started working my way back up uh, into a few AP classes by my senior year, but the most significant, most significant change I made was to, to join the choir, and I joined joined the, the chorus uh, audition. Got into the chorus and had some success there. Really loved singing. By my senior year, uh, junior year, I joined one musical. I was in the chorus and the musical. But by my senior year, I was able to to participate in two musicals. I had leading roles in both musicals, and so I more or less climb to the uh, to the top of the singers in my school. I would say I was one of the top realistically I'd say top two. 
whether I was one or two, it kind of depends on <laughs> whose opinion. But anyway, I have a good friend who was also an excellent singer, and we both pursued music and, and uh, still still sing today. And then to be a solo musician, which started there, I did some solos in the Messiah in high school as well, but I went on to, to study music. But to be a soloist is a very special kind of trying to become significant and remain significant because if you don't you just won't get the job and so there's a lot of selfishness involved in your lifestyle to become a soloist uh, and that involves uh, in you know taking taking the best care of your your body and your voice as possible uh, you know, trying to maintain this certain kind of persona, even down to the way you wear your hair or your, your beard, uh, mixing with artsy-fartsy people and, and all of this stuff, it kind of really takes over and you start, the only way I can say it is you start putting on airs, uh, and that's what's expected of you. In fact, uh, we had, uh, I still remember her name, Joan Dorneman. I think she was a coach at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. She came and did a, a lecture or a master class or something, and she, she said something that really kind of messed me up in some ways, and it, she didn't mean to, and I, I still think maybe you have to do this to be an opera singer, but it's, it's pretty weird. And she said, if you want to be dramatic, or if you want to be in the dramatic arts, you need to look dramatic. And you know, that's kind of, if you think about it, it's kind of messed up. Uh, but what she was saying is, is that people who cast you, whether it's in, you know, whatever it is, they want to, they want to perceive that you are an artsy person, that you are one of them, that, that you belong. And so, you know, almost, they're almost telling you, you need to be eccentric. <laughs> so, you know, the way you, the way you look, you know, as far as your, your, your wardrobe choices, uh, again, the way you, you keep your hair, the way you walk, the way you talk, all of these things. And I, and I was pursuing opera at the time. Uh, they kind of want you to have certain, a certain kind of mannerisms. Um, which, thinking back now, it just seems ridiculous. I mean, it just seems crazy that, that the people in leading positions who are casting and, and, and you know choosing people to be in their productions, that they could be so superficial. Uh, it kind of blows me away. But anyway... You know, as far as uh, being significant, I, I had it and still have a tendency to really push myself to be the best vocalist. Uh, and I think pretty highly sometimes of my own abilities. The only thing that's probably kept me humble is uh, the only thing that's, that is a stronger uh, presence in my musical life than talent is laziness. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I know that I, I could work harder and should work harder. Uh, 
But anyway, I've been trying to put that aspect of my identity behind me to, to take it to the cross, to to give up that need to be significant. And the thing is that that came into my Christian life as well. And of course, everything will, right? You're 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 a person. You're not you're not several people. You have you have one life, and no matter how many parts of that life, one aspect is going to bleed into the other eventually. And so, you know, the the, the theater, the, the theatricality that I learned uh, studying music and, and musical theater uh, probably does make its way into uh, my theology, uh, my relationships, pretty much every part of my life uh, and so I want to I want to be careful I want to I want to be diligent to go back and discover the the half truths or the lies that that have been uh, told to me and that I believed in the past to make sure that I don't any longer buy into those um, you know that that call to be dramatic is is it is not so unlike a call to be disingenuous you know it's pretty amazing actually but there is a lot of superficialness superficiality is that a word uh in the arts whether it's uh music theater movies uh the visual arts whatever not a lot of depth there sometimes and by the nature the very nature of the arts are supposed to be deep so it's kind of ironic um, uh, anyway so laying down this this desire to be significant doesn't come easy to me You know, take this podcast, for example, I, I could be trying to, you know, to promote it better. I could be trying to become the best or the, you know, but the way I do this is decidedly low key. You know, I, I'm not trying to, uh, I hope, um, come across as any kind of expert uh, at anything. But what I do hope and pray is that at least some of what I say is Jesus speaking in me and that if there's any anything significant that comes out of this podcast that if, if you see it as such that you will give glory uh, to the Lord for that uh, and, and I would be happy for that and then that's all that I would need to be happy uh, which is why I do this uncut and uh, yeah um the need to be the best and the smartest and uh, the most radical or, or the most shocking or the best and the most, the need to be first, uh, doesn't come from Jesus. Uh, you know, Jesus is first. Uh, he, he needs to be given the preeminence and the highest place. Uh, because it belongs to him anyway, and so by us 
by us giving him that place. It's just us, us acknowledging the fact uh, that that's where he is already. The Lord has placed him in the highest place and he will not lose that position. He cannot. The only question is, do you acknowledge it? Are you living your life in such a way that you submit your will to Him, you submit all glory to Him, uh, and you just live and try to live by His divine life? That's what I hope for you, and that's what I hope for me. So uh, I hope you get something out of this podcast. If you do, tell a friend. Uh, if not, yeah, I would be happy if you would uh, find my Facebook page, Driving Theology, and leave a comment about what I can do to improve. Um, thanks a lot. You guys have a wonderful night and a uh, wonderful life. Bye-bye.